the shift happened because I fell to my knees and I started shaking and trembling and crying and just looking up at the sky and praying to God. I said, take the money, take the notoriety, take everything. I don't care. I need a single day of freedom. I'm begging you. And, um, you know, he heard me because I, I saw that white light. And some people get it in life. And I got it right then in the bathroom at the Carillon building in New York City because I stood up and it wasn't me. And I flushed the pills and wound up on a computer. And I was in a taxi cab 20 minutes later looking up at the sky saying, oh, my God. For the first time in my life, I wanted to stay sober more than I wanted to get high. And I wound up in a church basement with 150, 200 acts and alcoholics. And I threw my hand right up. I said, I'm down. I'm sick. I'm suffering. I want to kill myself. I can't make this. I need your guys' help. And about a dozen men came over to me. They were my spiritual brothers to this day and said, we got you. We know how you're feeling. But if you keep coming one day at a time and stay close to us, we can show you a life that you can never imagine. Darren, what's up, man? What's up, man? Thanks How you for doing? having me. Hey, thanks for being on the show. Real mm -hmm. pleasure. So you got a pretty dope spot here. I'm not going to lie. We, we were able to somehow sneak in the whole entire room, but hopefully nobody walks in. Hopefully the Avalon isn't watching this interview when it airs. Guys, you know, it's just at the end of the day, it's a commercial for you guys. So they should, they should, be, they should be happy we're doing this in here. <laughs> Good point. Um, anyways, I want to get started. You have a very, very, very interesting past. And let me tell you something before I dive into it. I can relate a little bit. So something that I don't necessarily talk about all the time is this whole journey that I'm on actually inspired from a drug overdose at the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And so hearing about your story and how you took that and changed it up, because I know, I know you get into a very confused state, mm -hmm. a very confused state once you go through that process and you're not necessarily sure how to get out of it. And I thought it was really inspiring to see somebody who's kind of like using that to advocate against it and to really show people like that there is a light. You know, if you go through it, there is a light on the other side. So why don't you guide me through Darren before all of this happened? Because I always ask myself this question all the time and I'm kind of curious from your perspective how it is. Like how like for me, I ask myself, how was Adam before the drugs? How was Adam mm -hmm. before what he did? And so how was Darren to you before the drugs and what kind of spiraled into getting into that lifestyle. And when I speak, I often tell the story just like this. I had a great loving family, uh, mother, father, sister, very close. I lost my father two and a half years ago and um, all the love and care in the world. From the outside, none of it made sense that I went down the path that I did. But I never fit in, never felt a part of. Always felt like an outcast, so uncomfortable in my own skin, so much nervous anxiety over absolutely nothing. So I think it was around 14 years old, I was in sleepaway camp and you know, a lot of insecurities. I was in these small classrooms, had a learning disability, apparently is what I was told from teachers. So I was teased because of that. And I'm at sleepaway camp one night, that nervous anxiety, one of these horrendous stomach pains. Hmm. So I took the counselor, I said, we need to go to the infirmary, I don't know what's wrong. And she gave me this green liquid and a clear cough syrup cup. And I don't know what it was. I took it, tasted disgusting. But three minutes later, I'm walking across the softball field. Every time I talk about it, the hair on my neck still stands up and my life changed forever. Every one of those inferiorities and securities went away like that. I got back to the bunk. I'm now the cool guy, the talkative one. 
the good looking one, the buff one, the popular one, the funny guy. I got the courage to go to the bunk next door and flirt with girls for the first time in my life. Hmm. Thinking nothing of it, I woke up the next morning, did all my activities, and that very next night I'm lying in bed with no stomach pain whatsoever, and I'm looking up at the sky saying, man, that feeling is amazing. Huh. I look at the counter, I go, yo, my stomach is killing me, man. This was at 14. We did this for three straight weeks every night until my mom and dad came up for visitation day and found that I was taking liquid Demerol, and that was the end of that. And okay. um, But I found the magic. I found the answer, and I chased it. And, a few months later, I got my wisdom teeth taken out, and I got the same reaction from Vicodin. Mm-hmm. I'm on the phone calling up my boys, friends of mine. Uh, there was just something that I was missing that gave me what I was missing. And that took you down that entire path. And how long was your addiction? From there, it was about 24 years. 24 years. So throughout the process, did it ever hit you that you had to stop? or? It took a long time because... You know, when you start a baseball card business as a teenager, you're making more money than your friend's parents. I was 15 years old in 1985, making $200,000, $300,000 a year selling baseball cards. Um, My ego, not realizing so much, it was this deep-rooted, broken insecurity. You know, people treated me a little bit different because now Darren's cool. He's the one written up on the newspapers. And uh, it took me eventually into the sports and entertainment industry. At uh, 25 years old, I had Magic Johnson as my first client. And I remember right down the street at the Mondrian, maybe 1997, lit up, banked up at a party and high as a kite. And I see Kobe Bryant. I walked over to him schmoozing. I talk about it in the book. He's on the phone with one of his friends. Oh, this is my boy. Let me say hello to him. Hold on, bro. I'll call you back. And I was just fearless. you know. And then from the outside, it looked like I had it all. But I was so incredibly broken on the inside. I was always looking for that outside fix. That was an inside job. And I believed all the bull crap. You know, the way I was treated differently, you know, because of what I did, but never knowing who the hell I was. And eventually what was once living to use turned out to using to live. And uh, the last two or three years, I didn't want to wake up. I I was just so sick and tired of living this double life where people thought this so-called super agent. But in reality, I was a complete fraud. I was a joke to myself. So let's, let's let's go back. So you, you 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 were selling baseball cards at the age of fifteen, you said. Mm-hmm. And then how did that spiral into you becoming an agent? I had a sports memorabilia company for a few years, sports and celebrity memorabilia company, and I would broker uh, autograph signings mm-hmm. for all these athletes and celebrities. So I built a relationship with them through that. And and to you, the drugs were the ones that were helping you push through all those challenges. Well. Absolutely. Okay, and. You know, this this is so super relatable for me. That's why I was like, we, we actually had, I'm going to be very honest with you, we had like a list of questions. Mm-hmm. And I went over your story and I'm like, you know what, screw the questions. I know like exactly the kind of conversation I want to have with you because did you ever, how did you feel when you were sober? When right. you weren't with that, sub, when you didn't have access to the substance, when you had to perform at a high level, did that ever happen to you? Not really, because once I started, I was I always had money. So I always had resources and Every doctor was in awe of me because I manipulated the system. Um, I'd be at a doctor in the middle of freaking San Francisco that would come make a house call. I'd pay him 500 bucks. I'd call Hulk Hogan, get him on the phone with them. I'd, you know, smoking Joe Frazier would be with me on the road somewhere. I'd be like, hey, champ, I got a doctor coming. I don't feel good. Come say hello to him. You, you do this stuff, become a professional con artist. And uh, so I always made sure that no matter what city I was in, I manipulated the system. So that methodology of knowing how to get the job done, how did that come into hand by build, with building your business? Oh, I think I always was a people person, which mm-hmm. came from my dad. 
Um, he always taught me, you know, a few things. It's not what you say, it's what you do. Your reputation's the hardest thing to uphold and the easiest thing to lose, and you only get one chance. And then the idea is 1% and carrying it through is the other 99 because everybody's huh. got the ideas, but they don't know how to carry it through. And I think all that together collectively always made me so hands-on. To this day, my clients will tell you, I, I, I can be on the phone with Hulk Hogan like I was two days ago for an hour. Every single call ends with, I love you, brother. Love you, bro. It just, we have this deep, deep emotional you know, connection. I'm that way with my corporate clients. I just think, you know, I never lost sight of the appreciation of these corporate, celebrity, and personal relationships that I've built. And um, I'll deal with, it doesn't matter if it's a multi-million dollar deal or making sure Magic Johnson's Cadillac Escalade is waiting for him on the tarp when his private jet lands. I don't care, I don't have a ego when it comes to that. This is my job, whether it's at the bottom or the top. And has that, you said, has that been rooting for you since you were a kid? Yes. That's, so this is something that you were taught growing up that you always treat each other equally or how did, where did that come, where did that come from? A lot of it was my dad. Okay. Like I said, he was a, a huge inspiration of my best friends and um, you know, I lost him two and a half years ago. He's the big reason why I was inspired to write this book after he passed. But, you know, he taught me so much. And I remember, you know, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, any of my guys could have been in town, Dennis Rodman. It was always so big on him to take them to dinner. And I was like, Dad, it's annoying that then they get bothered. You know, it doesn't become, you know, enjoyable for them. And it's like, you don't understand. Nobody offers them this to get away from the business. It's super important. Even if they go once out of every three or four times, it's important to ask them. And, once in a while, I think I'm, I think almost every one of them would always have a, a Prince dinner family or a lunch oh, out somewhere, which, cool. which was always great. And how, how when you first started, obviously getting in front of these big names, it's not a it's not something that's easy to accomplish. What'd you do? What was your first big break? Uh, well, I I think people have mentors in life, right? Mm -hmm. You need to you need to surround yourself with people that are smarter, more successful. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you learn from somebody that's got more success from you. If you're the smartest person in any room you walk into, you need to find another room. Mm -hmm. And I surrounded myself with people that had those gifts, those, talent, those talents, because you save a fortune of money and years learning from their mistakes. You know, and I, I just think uh, you know, surrounding myself with that type of environment allowed me to excel that much quicker um, at such a young age. And people talk about mentorship a lot, and I feel like with everybody that's, they have their own certain definition of mentorship. What was mentorship to you? Did you actually have like physical meetings with people on like a weekly basis? Or was it, did you read books? Did you, did you chase uh, through audio? How, how did you learn from these individuals? I think there was different stages in my business career. There were different people. Early mm -hmm. on, it was my dad and my uncle Joe who passed away in my early 20s. And then once I got into, uh, once I got out of the memorabilia game, I needed, um, Magic, people like Magic Johnson were like the first one that was right there to tell me how to do things and how not to do things. And even getting into the memorabilia business, I had a, a good friend, Jeff Hamilton, who's a very well-known leather jacket designer. He opened up the door with uh, one of my closest friends now, Harlan Warner, who's Muhammad Ali's agent. So I always surrounded myself with you know super successful people, really taking advantage of whatever position I was in. And most importantly, keep my mouth shut and listen, because I knew I didn't know much. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. And how did you leverage value from both ends? How did you give them value in return for their mentorship? What, how did that discussion? And the reason why I'm going into details is because I, I personally get a lot of, a lot of these questions is how do you convince someone at such a high level to spend time with you when I'm pretty sure they have a bunch of other things on their plate? How did that look for you? You know, I think I was authentic. I was real. Mm -hmm. um, I was relentless too. 
I still am to this day. Okay. Doesn't matter how big of a deal is. We pulled off one of the most epic corporate events two months ago with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. It's never been done before to the Hard Rock Casino. And that next morning at 9 a.m., I'm on the phone with Magic and we're laughing about it. And he goes, all right, boy, what's the next one? What other casinos are you calling? You know, it's just always been in me. Uh, there's just the, the, the chase of it, the thrill. They always got to get better, always got to do more, always have to you know, keep proving. My mindset now with every agent that works for me is we're only good as our last deal. I don't mm. care if we got a 25-year relationship. Okay. You know, and uh, you know it works for me professionally. It might be a little bit difficult for people personally to understand that mindset, but that's just me. It's and when just, you say relentless, does that mean if you get a no, you continue going, or what does relentless mean to you? If if you get a no, I'll find I'll try to find another way. Okay. Um, if could you I, give us an example of a moment where you got rejected and you just kept going? Um, I mean, I tried my, the, the opening of my book, uh, the Ali Fraser, uh, those two kings reuniting. That took seven years of convincing Joe. To finally, you know, put the hate aside, put the resentment aside, and the the, the worlds collided uh, in 2001. Muhammad Ali was on the front page of the New York Times saying, "I I apologize to Joe Frazier, who was a good man, and if God, uh, you know, called me into a holy war, I'd want Joe Frazier right besides me." And uh, it still took me a year after that to convince Joe that it was time. Oh, seven years, and how? Okay. Necessarily, so it's very interesting. I'm I'm getting into more technical details now. A lot of, when when you're dealing with the high level, do you notice any difference from from high level people or just a normal person, or is this just the same interaction, same thing? There's no key differentiation, or is there, or do you have certain strategies that you have for more higher end clients than your typical? Or do, do you get what I'm saying? You might you might need to change gears a little bit. Uh, when it comes to somebody that's more high end, that's obviously got the proven success. Yeah, versus okay. somebody that doesn't. But it's still the same, I mean, in a way, because if somebody doesn't have that success and they still need convincing or an education or why they should consider something, whether it's a bigger client or a medium size, you still have to you know, find a way to, to convince them and explain why this is a great opportunity or why it's something they should reconsider and why they're looking at it wrong and they should maybe change their perspective on the opportunity. So when you say changing gears, can you give me like an example of like top three things that come out of your mind that, you know, are different than the way you communicate with these people? You know, I just think, um, like I said, if, it, if it's a bigger name, I, I can identify with projects we've done or they've been associated with. If it's somebody that's not as experienced, um, I'll have to give identifications or exemplars of other situations of opportunities that they might know. Mm-hmm. And then I sometimes just use it for my own experience, you know, and I'll just say, hey, I had this opportunity or I had this situation a few years ago that ever tell you about it. So no, 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 tell me about it. And then if I'm explaining to it where it's real and it's authentic, um, sometimes it works. A lot more times than not, it works. Okay, I see. Authenticity. And you've been sober for quite a bit now. How has the world changed for you since? 11 and a half years. It's yeah. changed Congratulations, completely. by the way. Yeah, Thank that's you. beautiful. The greatest thing I've done yeah. in my whole life. And how was that first? Can you can you guide me through that last day? Uh, when you made that intention to like... I still get emotional talking about it, which is good because I never want to forget. But <laughs> it was July 2nd and... Uh, on a Sunday evening, I was married at the time, and I came back from the gym in New York City at my apartment, and I was detoxing for two days, and I uh, I said, I can't do this. I called my uncle and his then-girlfriend, who were in the 12-step fellowship, who were trying to get me clean, and I said, I'm calling the damn doctors. I'm getting what I really need to get. My uncle picked up the phone and said, this is the damn disease talking, Darren, because it's owned your ass for 20-something years. It's time you go to a 12-step meeting, put your hand up, put your damn ego aside, and tell these people you're sick, you're suffering, and you need help. 
I said, there's no freaking way. I hung up the phone. I went into the bathroom and um, opened up a medicine cabinet. And we were sure that me and my ex threw out all the opiates. And I went to take these two narcotic anxiety pills and uh, two Vicodins fell out. Vicodins one of the three opiates I was addicted to. And uh, for a split second, it seemed like a gift from God. I took that deep breath. I was like, oh, thank God. And then the shift happened because I fell to my knees. And I started shaking and trembling and crying and just looking up at the sky and praying to God. I said, take the money, take the notoriety, take everything. I don't care. I need a single day of freedom. I'm begging you. And, um, you know, he heard me because I, I saw that white light. And some people get it in life. And I got it right then in the bathroom at the Carillon building in New York City because I stood up and it wasn't me. And I flushed the pills and wound up on a computer. And I was in a taxi cab 20 minutes later looking up at the sky saying, oh, my God. For the first time in my life, I wanted to stay sober more than I wanted to get high. And I wound up in a church basement with 150, 200 acts and alcoholics. And I threw my hand right up. I said, I'm down. I'm sick. I'm suffering. I want to kill myself. I can't make this. I need your guys' help. And about a dozen men came over to me. They were my spiritual brothers to this day and said, we got you. We know how you're feeling. But if you keep coming one day at a time and stay close to us, we can show you a life that you can never imagine. That is beautiful. And... You know, you say you got the light. Some people don't necessarily get that. Mm. And I've personally dealt with a lot of people who get down this path and don't ever come out of it. So if anybody's watching that's stuck in that loophole, that circle, what tips would you give them on how to kind of get themselves out of it? You know, there's hope and recovery for anybody that's out there. I'm living proof because to me, the high bottoms are the ones that are the easiest to overdose and not make it because we've got the resources and um, it's harder for us to come to terms that we actually have a problem because you look at the business i look at the clients look at the success and the money um you know we're the ones that like i said we're more of a an emotional bottom and um if you want this more than anything help is everywhere there's not a city across america that doesn't have 12-step meetings outpatient centers have the courage to speak up. Um, it takes strength to talk about the problem rather than keep it within yourself. And, and when that happens and when you fully surrender to whatever disease of addiction, alcoholism, substance abuse, overeating, shopping, everybody's got something that makes them power powerlessness where you know it's a real problem, mm -hmm. where it becomes first and you cannot control it. When you've got the courage to speak up and you can break through to the other side, it's the greatest thing you could ever do for yourself. And when you feel under pressure now, you know, obviously being such a high performer, you have a lot on your plate, I'm sure, on an everyday basis. So when you're under pressure, what kind of things do you do to kind of make sure you don't slip and fall? I go to 12-step meetings. I've got a sponsor back in New Jersey. who's my dear friend. He's got 32 years. I've got sponsees that, uh, you know, through the gift my higher power gave me, I'm allowed to, you know, pass it along to these, you know, younger men that now have sobriety. We talk to each other and my perspective and perception changes on everything now because I'm sober. So just how I look at my attitude, what I'm looking at on a given day, that's really a problem. Is it a problem? Because I think in reality, anybody living in this building or anybody in this room right now being interviewed, we think something's a problem. If we're not dying, if there's no disease or, you know, sense of life threatening emergency, we have luxury problems. At the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah. don't look at it like that. Mm -hmm. You want to say, oh, this is the problem. My car got hit. Joel Olstein's a good friend. Okay. I know, I love what he says. At least you have a car. You know, people don't realize that. You're driving on the freeway, you get a flat tire. What a disaster this is. Is it really? What about the people that have 
no home, no place to go, you know. But it's easy in society to think that way. And now that you've sobered up, what's your why behind everything you do? What's my why? Yeah. For me, it's it's just helping people. It's the greatest thing in the world. There's nothing like, um, you know, just get in front of an audience. And um, my favorite is teenagers, but when I can do it with adults too, and I know somebody came that day having no clue what they were about to hear and having no belief that they could ever kick this dirty little sick secret that they've been living, how bad and how dark it got. But some God-given words that came out of Darren Prince's mouth touched them, where either during the Q&A or after during a book signing, they come over to me and said, hey, can I talk to you? I can't tell you the list of people that um, you know, ha- have recovered and have found sobriety. I've got a woman back home in Short Hills, New Jersey. She's writing blogs now. She's speaking. And um, you know, she's like, um, I-, I just can't even tell you every time. When my dad passed away, she came to his funeral and said, um, I can't even tell you that you gave me my kids back. And, hmm. um, you know, she goes, they were taken away from me by my ex-husband. And, um, you know, she goes, I, I just can't tell you how special you are. And I go, look, I'm not the one that's special. It's my God that's special because I was given this gift by him. That is beautiful. And so you just continuously just share your story and help other people yep. figure it out. So I want to shift gears into business now. So you have a lot of successful accolades behind you. You've done a lot of amazing things, worked with just amazing big names and players. When you first and your first big your first big deal was Magic Johnson, correct? Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a bit about that first uh, that I know we kind of talked about a little bit in the beginning of the podcast, but how did you obtain such a big name when you first started? What was like what was your strategy behind it? So um, life's about who you know, not what you know. Mm-hmm. And so for my friend Jeff Hamilton, I got introduced to Harlan Warner who's Muhammad Ali's agent, and one day in 1994, I had an opportunity for Magic Johnson. I called up Harlan, he introduced me to Lon Rosen, who was Magic's longtime player agent. And it was like Fort Knox getting through to Magic Johnson at that point. Lon was very, very, very protective of who gets brought into that inner circle. But you know, I proved myself that they allowed me to book the first event for Magic. And um, I was so OCD about where I needed to be, where my staff needed to be. I flew extra people out. I wanted to make sure he felt like a king, didn't need to lift a finger, that all the I's were dotted, T's were crossed, and it was flawless, just a perfect experience. And I knew that he was gonna call on and his team afterwards. And you know, just from that first one, then the second opportunity came, the third opportunity came. And I got into some, without giving the story, away, some pretty big legal uh, trouble uh, in the mid-90s from hmm. the memorabilia business I was in. And uh, first time in my life, I had financial problems. I lost everything. Uh, I was about a million dollars in debt. And um, I got off without you know, getting any jail time because the judge realized that it was just a, a very stupid mistake that I made. And um, in, a, in a limousine in Atlantic City with Magic crying one night about what happened. And uh, he's like, you know, God tests great men and women, and he's testing you right now. And you're gonna look back and you're gonna make lemonade out of lemons. And a few months later, I was with my dad fly fishing in Alaska. And he's like, what's your next move, boy? I said, like, you know, dad, I can't go back into the memorabilia business. I want to be an agent, but I'm not an attorney. And uh, it's like, attorney, what does that have to do with it? And he gives you that expression. It's about who you know in life, not what you know. Why don't you speak to magic? You have a three-year relationship with them. Tell him what you want to do. Maybe he'll give you a shot where you could be his, his you, agent. You, just, you just share it. That's how it happened. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting how you just like, it's, oh. Somebody's in here. Um, 
it's it's interesting how you talk about just uh, sharing your story because I feel like a lot of people when when they're in front of big names like that they're kind of I guess antagonized by the whole ideology of oh my god he's a star uh, where am I who am I to think when people just don't understand that there's like a human connection that you have to implement and I feel like you're done that so well with everybody you've leveraged everything you've done and everybody you've inspired it's I'm, I'm, I'm pretty taken away I'm pretty taken away I'm not gonna lie like there's not a lot of people that when I sit with them I'm just like in, in, in the shock of how they've been able to turn their life around so when it comes to leadership though let's talk a bit about that you know you I'm sure you manage a team and you have a lot of you know as I said different things under you what are some key tips to being a great leader I, I do have a great team around me. Um, I've got five great agents. I've got Patrick and Nino, my, our head of social media, is here. And, um, you know, everybody knows their role. Mm-hmm. Nobody steps on each other's toes. And uh, somebody else will pick up the slack if somebody else is unable to do it. That's as far as my agency, Prince Marketing Group side. When it comes to my celebrities, uh, men, women, whoever they are, I know that I'm the man behind the man and the man behind the woman. And okay. that's the key to me to becoming a successful agent. There's a lot of them out here in Hollywood and up in New York start to think they're bigger than the celebrity, they're bigger than the athlete. Um, That's not the case. The player and the celebrity and the musician makes the agent, makes the manager. Yeah, a lot of us are a lot smarter, might have a lot more um, abilities to open up doors, Mm -hmm. but you first need that talent to give the agent and the manager that platform to open up those doors. Mm -hmm. so. if you were to pull out maybe like <clears throat> two or three different things that people need to focus on when it comes to leadership, what would they be? Um, surrounding yourself with a great team okay, um, or some great people if you can't afford to have a, a team if you're, if you're in a startup mode. Listen a lot more than you talk so you can learn and surround yourself with people that are also more successful than you within the industry that you're trying to achieve your ultimate success. You've branded yourself literally based off association, basically. Yes. Yes, that's amazing. It's, it's so interesting. And, and leverage. Leverage, it's, it's like it's who you know. It's literally who you know. Connections are super key. I, I'm not toot my own heart, but Patrick will tell you. I mean, I'm probably one of the best leveragers on, on the planet. It's just how I'm able to work and something happens for somebody and then somebody else and then boom, I put two more people with this one. It's like a game of chess, but I've been doing it for you know, 26, 27 years. So and I how do you stay team. in touch with everybody? Some of my team and my friends, they're, they're blown away how like robotic and how I could just be so calm, cool, and collected no matter what's going on on any, any given day. And Saturdays with Chevy Chase in Atlantic City for this big Q&A. Just made sure Dennis knocked out an interview today. We're being with Magic Johnson tomorrow and you know Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan at the end of the week. They're here at the Staples Center uh, with WWE. And uh, it's just, it's easy, man. You know, I've been doing it for, I've been doing <laughs> are, it for are you so one of those long. Guys I, just... I, I think like the writer of my book, Krista McGinnis, um, and Anna David, my publisher, I got to give her a shout out because they did a tremendous job. She's like, it sounds to me, and she wrote it in the book, that you realize at a certain point you have a special talent for managing special talent. That's Hmm. a good way to put it. Hmm. A leverager, a great leverager. Yeah, because I actually have this this guy we know who, uh, a colleague of ours, was making a joke about how he always somehow stays in touch with everyone he knows. Like, even people who you haven't seen in, like, maybe years, at least you grab lunch or something. Do you have some sort of method that you follow or a system that you follow that you probably could share with us? I sort of do the same thing. When it's their birthdays, I have calendar invites to give them a call, mm-hmm. send something to the house. Um, if it's you know, if their wives' birthday, vice versa, the same sort of thing. Uh, the holidays, um, New Year's, Thanksgiving. To this day, I think every Thanksgiving, the first two text messages I get um, are for Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. 
Oh, it's nice. unbelievable. Very nice. Unbelievable on Thanksgiving. That's very yep. cool. You have close relationships with everyone around you. Yep. I think that's 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 just an amazing thing for 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 somebody to have and leverage because uh, not a lot of good people out there like that kind of understand how to create that and sustain a relationship. No, it's about personal relationships. Uh, a month ago, I was at Carmen Electra's house for three hours talking life. Um, Denise Richards and I were on the phone for a half hour last week. She's in between filming Beverly Hills Housewives. And yeah, there's a trust and a love and a bond and a respect. You know and funny? I know how each person ticks. Yeah. You know, I feel like social media has caused such a distance in people. That could do it too. What's, what's your take for on sure. that? Yeah, no, it could. I mean, I think it also breaks down the communication. Um, mm-hmm. Where years ago when we didn't have it, you were almost forced to call somebody and have a, a, a lot bigger personal bond mm-hmm. that we can nowadays we're also quick to text message and inbox or dm and it just doesn't you know allow you to have that ability as much anymore mm-hmm. no definitely so this book aiming high you said your father's passing away is what inspired you to write it yes so tell us a bit about what's uh like maybe give us a little bit of golden nuggets of what's inside All right so dad wanted me to write a book about my journey you know in the agency business and i just said you know dad i said i don't have an ego anymore i said i checked that at the door when i got sober Mm -hmm. um so i I don't i don't feel comfortable writing about my experiences and so when he passed all these crazy things started happening a contact by the trump administration to be involved with their opiate epidemic mission and i got i got booked on dr oz i got booked to speak at a couple big galas and I hooked up with my publisher, Anna David, at a meeting here in Los Angeles. And she's like, you know, your story is fascinating. Why don't you write a book? I was like, you know, it's funny you said that. And my father passed away eight months ago. I wanted me to write one. She goes, I got it. I know what the book is. She goes, most agents at your level can't write a book about it because they're with one of the big, big agencies. You own your own agency. This would be the first of its kind that a credited agent with your success can talk about the hell of addiction to the beauty of spiritual recovery. Hmm. But also take the world with you on this journey of what it's like as a you know agent performing at the highest level. Mm-hmm. It's like that's it. It's like that's it. I just knew it felt right. And two weeks later, I was in Miami. This one gets me a little emotional. And I was with Magic in his hotel suite. And I told him I signed a deal to publish my book. He was so excited and uh, asked what it's about. And I told him. He's like, man. He goes, you're going to change lives. This is going to be your legacy. You're going to touch the world in ways you never have. And I said, I got one more question for you. I said, could you write the forward? And uh, I was so nervous. And um, he looked at me, he goes, baby boy, he goes, I'd be so angry if you didn't ask me to write the forward. And that's why he's here. You know, and he hasn't done a forward, I can't even tell you how many years. So it meant a lot to me. That's amazing. That's that's really cool. I was I was I was going through it, skimming through. There's a lot of photos of the different people you've met. Yeah. It's like a history. It takes you down like literally. It's a whole documentary of what you've yeah. been through and everything. So that's pretty cool. And people can find it on Amazon. If Amazon they or my website officialdarrenprince.com. Okay. And where can people find you at their social uh, Instagram media? at agent underscore dp. And for anybody struggling that needs help. I'm a rep for Banning Treatment Centers. They have 11 properties. I have my own personal call center at 8886-DARREN, is this which the... is D-A-R-R-E-N. No, the, the yeah, thing this is wearing? another organization. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I said, that, that the agent life is amazing, but but that's not what defines me. You know, it, it's the recovery advocacy that means more to me than anything. It's like a completely different thing of what you're actually doing. It's, it's Completely different. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what keeps you alive, wouldn't you Absolutely. say? Absolutely. I, f- I found myself worth. I found myself by doing esteemable acts and by giving it away the way that I'm able to. I finally realized who the real Darren Prince was. 
and to look in the mirror and know it's not about the jewelry anymore and the crazy expensive cars and all the beautiful women. That's bull crap. It doesn't make anybody happy at the end of the day. You know, it's, this is what makes me happy. Well, Darren, I appreciate you so much for sharing your story. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having yeah. me, bro. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome.